Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today, and if you're just joining us for the first time, I always say good morning, afternoon, and evening, because people are listening to this show in all different time zones, so I never know where somebody is the moment they're listening, whether it's live listening in a different time zone or on podcast, on your favorite podcast platforms, but either way, this is my joy, this is my favorite place to be each week, to bring you the guests that I bring you, the people that have changed lives around the world, that have different perspectives and different questions that can help you take your business and your life to completely different levels because what I've learned through the course of my life is it's really the questions that change our lives because if we don't ask the right questions, we're not going to get the answers that will move us forward. And my guest that I have today is truly exceptional at that and he has guided my life after I sold my tech business, my tech services company, into a world that I didn't know of before, and his guidance has really helped me focus, and not only myself, but so many others around the world. I mean, his client list reads like a who-who, who's-who of the um, space of empowerment, personal development, global leadership. I mean... There's somebody that's at the top of that, and he's got his dogs with him today, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I apologize about that, Laura. Sorry. Oh, it's okay, Peter. It's, you know, this is live radio. Anything can happen, right? And it's, and it's about to. <laughs> so, everybody, um, welcome Peter Hoppenfeld to the show. He's, um, he's my go-to guy for any of my legal issues and, and strategy stuff. So, welcome to the show. Thanks, Laura. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and welcome to your podcast. Glad to join in, share, and, and talk, and share. Yeah, you know, you, you and I met at Author 101, I don't know, I want to say back in 2010 or 11, 2011. Something like that, right. Yeah, and, a long time ago. Yeah, and you were up on stage, and you were, you know, you're an attorney that is known for um, trademarks, licensing, for anything to do with growing, protecting, keeping your business going. And you're also one of the top literary attorneys in the world. But what I loved, Peter, was one thing you talked about, you goes, don't drink your own Kool-Aid. Correct. And it's so not lawyer. (laughs) Well, I I tend to. I have a very funky practice. It's evolved the way it's evolved. I, uh, on the back of my business card, I have an expression, uh, quoting the late great Yogi Berra that says, when you see a fork in the road, take it. Um, and in the last 36, seven years or so, my practice has evolved to representing, you know, I'm a distribution guy. I'm helping my clients bring their products and service to market. But I lead with strategy first and lawyering second. You know, I have to know what you want to do, what you're trying to accomplish, what your end game is, before you can figure out the lawyering. And for what I do, because I've been doing it for so long, without bragging, the lawyering is pretty easy. The hard part is knowing what you're selling, what your brand is, what your risk tolerances are, what the rules are, you know, what the, what the marketplace is like, uh, how you step into that marketplace and 
uh, and share, how you build an audience, you know. Uh, and as the years have gone by and the technology has changed, you just keep adding different tools to your tool belt. But for me, in you know, it's evolved to lawyering, strategy first, lawyering second, which is why a lot of lawyers don't get me and a lot of clients don't get me until I work with them. When when you and I met, you were talking uh, to a conference full of wannabe authors, and you helped yeah. negotiate my contract with my publisher, and then you also helped me when the process of getting the book published was starting to go south in a number of different ways. But you didn't always plan on having the focus that you've had, which is authors and experts and, you know, the world of peak performance, when you started out as a lawyer, did you have a thought that you'd ever go to this point in your career? Absolutely not. That's why I say when you see a fork in the road, take it. So you know, what was that day, moment like for you? Do, do you know the point in your fork where I, you I, picked this other direction? Uh, I didn't pick it. It picked me. Uh, that's the point. It picked me. So... I was doing, you know, franchise work back 35 years ago, representing big franchise companies and working with firms in the city and then on my own. And uh, out of the blue, I worked on a consulting gig with the non-attorney partner uh, in the personal development space. I had no idea what this was all about, no idea what direct marketing was, no clue. And, um, you know, one of the, the CFO of this, this client said, uh, well, you, you're an FTC expert because the franchise documents had the word Federal Trade Commission on it. And I said, yes, I am. I was a young lawyer. I had a new mortgage and a baby. And, and I was introduced to the Charles Givens organization. And Charles Givens back in the 80s was the personal finance guru, bar none. It was pre-internet. It was infomercials and live events. And he had, they had a situation they wanted me to work on, which I jumped into. And which is another story for another day. But I quickly became immersed in a world I didn't know, uh, but I learned. I, they had three or four different seminar companies and TV infomercials and direct mail and telemarketing and you name it. And it was like the ultimate laboratory, which was fascinating. And I also, but I learned that if I didn't understand the sales process, I was just somebody, I was just anybody. I was, uh, I, you know, was dispensable. So, you know, I, I didn't want to be a no, I realized if I was the no guy, I was useless. So I learned what it meant to make a sale and what the dynamics were and what all this, all this, this, these verb, this verbiage meant and what, you know, what the pressure points were. And that was the beginning. And that just became path after path, client after client, situation after situation. And then, and then that through the years, the technology changed and all of a sudden there was the computer. And then all of a sudden, you know, there was a fax machine. And then there was, you know, the, the internet started and then, we lived through the beginnings of that where, you know, everything was free and then all of a sudden the world changed. So, um, and my clients needs changed as they got more established and the role of books in their life changed and the role of content has changed. So, you know, the technology driven other elements and dynamics in the marketplace that nobody ever would have expected. You know, the publishing companies are publishing isn't what it used to be. Content creation isn't what it used to be. And that, you know, required me to be creative and to guide my clients and to learn from them what they wanted to do. Uh, and the rest is, as they say, history. 
Well, it's interesting to me, Peter, because what I've seen with a number of my clients and feedback I've gotten from a lot of my listeners is that fork in the road is something they massively struggle with because they have this idea of this is what their business is supposed to look like. But And then this fork comes, or and the fork could look something like their sales are down, or it could be a new client like the one that you had. And then they go, no, I can't continue down this road. I'll do this one-off, but I have to go back to the way I was doing business. What would be your advice or questions that the entrepreneur should be thinking about when those forks present themselves to know if it's really a path to go down? Well, I think you have to you know, understand your motivation, your own risk tolerance, and also understand that the marketplace is fluid and you could easily get trapped in the past. Um, and you have to learn not to be scared of the opportunity. Um, you know, that, I'm not to, not to say, at, at the same time that I say, well, when you see a fork in the road, take it, and I say, don't believe your own, you know, your own Kool-Aid. I also say that sometimes the best deals that you make are the deals you don't make. So there's a balancing act here. But, I mean, I still, to this day, I mean, I get phone calls uh, that are in situations and in industries and in dynamics that I never could have anticipated. And I am just open to the conversation and to listening and to seeing whether it fits in, whether I'm comfortable with the circumstance, whether I'm comfortable with the subject matter, with the people, uh, and whether there's opportunity. And then I also, you know, balance in not going overboard. You know, so... um, you know, I, I'm also very, very active in the health, wellness, and fitness um, uh, direct marketing world with a lot of integrative and, and functional medicine practitioners and, and fitness and diet. If you had told me that 10 years ago, I would have said you're crazy. But the, the core sensibilities and, and, and strategies I've been working on with my how-to-market clients fit right in there, plus to get to the next level because of the, the pressures and interests and uh, and opportunities in alternative medicine, in health, in messaging, um, and that again expanded as different methods of delivering content has changed, like podcasts and webinars and ebooks and digital publishing and self-publishing, um, and you know PBS specials and docu series and online summits. Um, so you know I think you need to kind of. You can't live in the past. You can't get too comfortable. I think there's a there's a healthy energy in being challenged, but also knowing what your limitations are, um, and also having a good sniffer and and smelling good you know good deals and bad deals. You have to trust your gut, but you have to be open to opportunity. Now you mentioned risk tolerance a few times, and yeah. I know that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs say, oh, it doesn't matter, just dive right in, and then you get the other one afraid to completely take any risk at all. In business, there is always risk, but a lot of what you do is helping clients minimize that risk, right, by protecting them. I would say what our, our focus is to create defensible positions, to be compliant with, but understanding that compliance is not black and white. So it's being defensible in the gray areas. So the example I can give you is uh, my clients in the health, wellness, health and wellness fitness space who are selling supplements, for example. Or, uh, you know, if you could be 100% compliant and sell nothing, and you could be zero compliant and make a killing for 90 days and say, okay, I'm out of here. 
Um, and I like to say to my clients, you know, you know, typically my clients are somewhere between a six and a nine or a five and an eight. Okay, they're not, they're they're compliant, but they they understand that there are gray areas. You know, it's it's all about the words, it's about the messaging. So creating messaging that is, you know, you're never going to be a hundred percent, but know how far off a hundred percent you can live with and sleep well at night. So you work this out, and you, uh, you know, it's and it's different for each client. Um, I have some clients who are who could, be, who could be able to take it like pretty fast and loose. Others who are no part of it. Um, and it really depends on the circumstance, the product, the niche, and the person, and the business. Um, so there is risk-reward risk, you know, analysis going on. Um, and not to say it's, it's bad to, with my clients who are more conservative, or it's good for my clients who are less conservative, or vice versa. It just is who it is. It's, no, it's just not a cookie-cutter approach. So I'm, you know, you're never going to see me with a, you know, a legal Zoom kind of product. One size fits all because one size does not fit all. Are there certain things that every business, whether they're doing business online or not online, that they need to begin thinking about and having in place as basic levels of protection when they're creating their business? Well, there are always the basics. You know, you should be doing business through an entity, an LLC, or a corporation. You need to paper trail your employees, your contractors, your, you know, your digital graphics content creators to make sure you own what you're hiring people to do. You know, you, you want to have a good tax advisor. You want to paper trail all your contracts. You want to, you know, have confidentiality agreements, non-disclosure agreements. All those kind of basic things I think we have to take as a foundational requirement. You know, get your house in order. Be prepared for your success is another ex- expression I tend to use. I had a client the other day that didn't even have half of that. <laughs> And he yeah, was doing no, business, and, and it surprising. was frightening to me. Yeah, and it happens all the time. And then they have websites, yeah. and they're selling stuff off their websites, and they don't even and have... And they have no terms of service. They have no privacy policy. They have no shopping cart. They have no terms of sale. Absolutely. It happens all the time. And it, and it, or they say, oh, I can just copy that privacy policy from my, from my cable company. No, you can't. It doesn't apply to your business. Um, Yes, these are all things you should have your house in order. You should have your copy vetted and proofed. You should, you know, deal with privacy issues. Uh, you know, deal with your customer customer service before you start taking, you know, selling things. Make sure that you have everything in place to support a, a vibrant business. My dad always told me that when I start my first business that I need to make sure that I have uh, a good accountant in my corner and a good attorney in my corner. <laughs> and good, you know, good thank- advice. thankfully I've had, I've had both, you as my attorney, and before when I had my tech company I had a different attorney. Um, and to me that is, is so critical, but people are so afraid to hire attorneys because they feel that once they bring an attorney on board, it's going to create an environment that, say, is more about them and less about their client or their client may think that they're trying to hide something. And I know that isn't the truth. But a lot of businesses out there are still hesitant to have somebody like you on board, not only as an attorney, but as a strategist to help them understand how to grow their business. So if, if, you, if somebody's trying to grow their business, say they 
they've had their business established for a while, and now they're going, oh, we're in this growth phase. What would you say to them is something they need to ask themselves to make sure that they've protected themselves against themselves? You know, that's a hard question. I mean, I, I think, you know, entrepreneurs have to, you know, con- go through their own self-growth. So I think it's naive for people to say, oh, I don't have a lawyer because, you know, people are going to think I have something to hide. That, that's just naive. I, I think you, you, there's a constant level of self-improvement and education that an entrepreneur needs to go through. I mean, there are circumstances where very successful businesses came out of nowhere were serendipitous uh, and unplanned. And, the, and there reaches a point where the founding CEO has to either grow or bring in somebody else. And those are the bigger decisions than hiring a lawyer. But I think it's the same issue. They have to, you have to decide what you want to be when you grow up. And if you're going to take the path to really expand the business, then you bring on a power team and you deal with it and you learn and you grow. Uh, and if you're going to get stuck in, 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 you know, a philosophy of shortage and fear, then you're not going to grow. You're going to live in a bunker. And, you know, some of my least favorite interactions with other lawyers, and I think lawyers can get in the way of good deals and good people and good relationships, uh, and that's a disservice, and it is a bad name to, to, to most. Uh, I, you know, don't, walk, don't, don't particularly uh, live in those circles. Uh, I do what I do, and I think I do it well, and there are times I'm called on to be a bad guy, and there are times I'm called on to be the good guy, and I have clients who cannot say no, and that's my job, to be their no guy. Uh, that's an important role sometimes. Uh, but I think you have to be self-aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are and what your end game is. Is it a business or a hobby? Is it a vanity play or is it a business? Make a decision. If it's a business, run it like one. If you can't run it like one, do something. Get a job. When I was going through getting my book created and everything, I, I remember that you and I were talking and I was having trouble with my book cover and with some other things that were going on. And you said to me, let me be your no guy. You don't need to be the bad guy. That's what I'm here for. And it was so true because there are, place, there are times and places where representing yourself is not the right thing to do. Well, there's that old expression, a lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client. So, you know, I think it is hard for some people to be no guy. I think there's also times where clients who are very, who could be very difficult where I'm more, the, I'm more of the, the facilitator uh, because they, it's just their nature. And that's fine. There's no right or wrong. just have to know how to, how to navigate certain situations. Look, all of business is ultimately a sales process. Negotiation is a sales process. Strategy making is a sales process. It's how do I move from point A to point B? How do I get somebody to convert? Conversion is is clicking, buying, accepting, you know, showing interest. You want to get people to convert. Otherwise, it's not business. And you have to figure out how to do that. Um, and not everybody can be everything. So, sure, you know, a founding somebody starting a new business is chief cook and bottle washer, but you've got to learn when to relinquish. you got to know what your strengths and weaknesses are, and you need to surround yourself with people who can help you. You're 
often a general counsel to a company, right. meaning you're their go-to person for any legal matters. But in my mind's eye, general counsel attorney is, like you said, you're, you're so much more than just a lawyer. But for so many people, they, they think to, you know, and I, I hear this all the time from my clients, I don't need a lawyer. All they're going to do is write a contract. But writing a contract is so much more, correct? I mean, it's, it's not just about putting words in. It's trying to understand somebody's business and what they're trying to sell, as you've said consistently throughout this morning. Um, if you were well, to every, tell... Everything is, context, everything is contextual. It's all about the circumstance. What is what are the hot buttons, the hot points of a particular circumstance? Whether it's engaging a person to render a service for, for, to help you, whether it's and that might require a contract, and that's fine. What about you know um, working with a, a vendor or you know hiring a company to, to render certain services or to act as a, as your sales arm or to be your banker or to create content or, you know, each circumstance or to do a co-promotion, each circumstance is contextual and you want to, you know, view that what's, what's the worst that can happen? What's the best that can happen? How do we get into this deal? How do we get out of this deal? How do we get paid? What are we worried about, you know, protecting? What is our intellectual property? What is our confidential information? What's the worst that could happen? And you want to kind of deal with those issues up front. What's the dynamic of the relationship? How do people converse? How do people communicate? How do people solve their problems? How do, when does it start and when does it end? What if I don't like you anymore? And, you know, so every, again, it's all in context. So it's not just a contract. And I, I, again, I don't work from forms. Uh, you know, we, 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 because each circumstance is different. I mean, certainly. Are there certain, you know, documents that you could use over and over again? Of course. But for the most part, in the more complex or, you know, dynamic relationships a business is entering into, the contract should match up to the circumstance and be reasonable under the circumstance. And you only figure that out from practice, experience. And for everybody that's listening live, you can get that list of all of those questions <laughs> that Peter just threw at us in like seconds of all the things that you need to be thinking about when you're running your business. I mean, Peter, that was just like a brilliant riff list of questions. Um, and this will be going to podcast everybody so you can get that wherever your favorite podcast channels are that you listen to. Um, you, one of the questions that you popped up in there is, you know, what it ends what happens when it ends and when you need to get out of it. That was one of the best pieces of advice that my attorney in, when I had my tech services company, when I brought on a partner, he specifically built in the out. And even with my employees being very clear about what that ending looks like. And people were like, well, why are you putting in how something ends? And I'm like, because inevitably something's going to end. And wouldn't it be I, nice? And by the way, just as, a as an aside, I have a rule with my clients that I, I will find them $100 every time they use the word partner. The word partner should be out of every listener's vocabulary. 
Okay, and that is a perfect way to go into the the national news break, and we'll talk some more about that when we come back from from national news. I'm here with Peter Hoppenfeld, uh, one of my go-to mentors. He's also my attorney and advisor. He works with some of the top people in the world to talk about how you can protect your business, but most of all, how you can expand and grow and do the right things by you and your clients and help yourself move into the next phase of your business life or if you're just starting out, start it out. So we'll be back in just a few moments with more from the amazing Peter Hoppenfeld. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Peter Hoppenfeld, attorney, strategist, advisor extraordinaire, one of my personal mentors and guides in all things business. And if you missed the first half of the show, you missed so much. He posed so many questions to us and gave us so many answers on different things we need to think about as we're growing our businesses. And that will be up on podcasts on your favorite podcast platform just in a a day or so. So, Peter, just before the break, you teased us with this comment. You said, everybody needs to remove the word partner from their thinking and stop thinking about adding a partner to their business. Not from their thinking. More to that. From their vocabulary. (laughs) Their vocabulary. From their vocabulary. And that that comes from a couple of thoughts here, okay? Number one, number one, you know, people refer in a business conversation to someone as their partner. What they might just be is a vendor. They might be a a sales affiliate. And right away, they're a partner. The word partner connotes certain liability. If I'm a partner with some, I mean, you know, we, we talked briefly about how to set up a corporation or an LLC. In terms of business structure, you know, you can be a solo practitioner. It's just you, you know, you, you run your business, and that's fine. You, could you be more protected by having an entity to limit your liability? You could. A partnership is quite possibly the most liability you could ever incur because you are responsible for the acts of your partner and vice versa. And unless it's like someone you, that you trust and is your best friend in the world forever and ever and ever, trust me, people can make mistakes and you're responsible for the errors of your partner. So you don't want to be a partnership under any circumstance. So when you start referring to people as your partner, there's a certain implication that you are, that you could form a partnership and you could be responsible for the acts of that person. So, uh, you know, Describe your business relationships accurately. Using the word, he's my partner, she's my partner, is a crutch. It's a shortcut. Be clear, but don't take on liability for want of using, finding a different word by thinking it's a power word. It's not, okay? Now, that segues into the situation. Well, I I, I want to bring another shareholder into my business. I want to start a business with someone who's going to own the business with me. And my answer there is don't ever not say no under any circumstances because, again, that goes against everything we talked about in the first half hour about opportunity and taking advantage of opportunity and leveraging your business ideas and growing. However, equity is forever. So you must pick and choose very carefully before you start handing out equity or stock ownership like candy. It's not candy. This is not the boom of the of of the dot com move in the late eighties. This is not you know, equity is not currency. And it's it's not something you give up because you can never get it back. Uh and people think, Oh, I'm I'm gonna hire this employee who they just met and they're gonna give them stock. 
nonsense. Your stock is something you earn. Equity is something you earn. You, there are ways of giving compensation based upon performance short of stock because you can't get it back. You give revenue shares. You give bonuses. The most I, I, t- I do not take my client business home with me home with me, but I have lost sleep in the last few years over breakups of corporations and LLCs amongst people who never should have owned the business together in the first place. So if you think that a contract is like a prenup, I beg to differ. If you're going to form a business and a corporation have other shareholders or a LLC and have other members, you have a shareholders agreement or operating agreement, which is a business prenup before you get started. So you know how you're in and how you get out. Because if there's a stalemate, I've seen hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent and countless hours of misery being spent trying to split up badly formed business arrangements. I've lived it myself, both in business and in marriage. I jokingly jokingly mentioned to a client, you know, who just, just engaged me to work on a project, and I said, you know, you have to agree that, you know, if you use the word partner again, it's going to cost you $100 each time. And 10 minutes later, he emailed me and said, I owe you 200 bucks. <laughs> okay, so what words can people begin to use when they're entering into, say, a short... This is my business, this is my business associate. You know, if it, let's say, look, you and I decide we're going to start this business and we're having an exploratory conversation with someone who could be our first customer. Okay? Well, okay. let's see, hey, does this thing work? Say, like, hey... So if I was in that meeting, I'd say, this is Laura. Laura and I are business, business associates. We're, we're started, we've started this business. This is what we're offering. As opposed to Laura and I are partners. Really? Got it. Okay. Okay. Sounds All right. Cool. I love that. And we could do a whole show just around that, that whole topic. But I want to make sure right. that before we get to the noon hour, we've talked about something that is near and dear to the heart of so many of my listeners. They all want to be published. And publishing has changed. Content creation has changed to to where it's like unrecognizable today. It's the wild, wild west. No, no, I wouldn't say it's the wild west. I, I would say it's completely turned itself upside down. Forever. And that's not, to, and that's not in a bad way. It just, it's, it's a power change. The, the dynamics of the publishing world has changed. Look, back in the day, pre-internet, people wrote books, and that was their life's work. Okay? If, they, if you wanted to get what you wanted to share out to the public, you had a book published. That's not the case anymore. And publishers were all important. They were omnipotent. They set the rules. They were the distributors. They were the ones who gave you the ability to get your work, life's work, out there. Well, that completely changed. And I, I, lead, I lead back to 2007, 2008 being the benchmark when the economy was crashing, and, you know, globally. Uh, you know, content was supposedly free on the Internet until, you know, the, the sales funnels of direct marketing companies disappeared because people didn't have credit cards to buy programs at live events. And what emerged out of that was the emergence of digital marketers who were selling content online, and they were doing it in a new way. They were making their, their, their opinions and their teaching available and building a community over with, with, with um, patience to say, this is what I'm about, and this is what I, what I want to share. And they were building an audience of people who were interested. 
who were engaged and who trusted the writer. And the writer at that point would say, you know, if you really want to learn more, I'm selling an ebook for $29. I am selling uh, a continuity program for $9 a month. They, they were starting slow and engaging their audience and building trust and selling content. And that has exploded into, you know, content creators who are marketers or influencers using the tools that have evolved over the, over the last 10, 12 years, including social media, podcasts, YouTube, blog posts, uh, webinars, summits, and the like that I mentioned earlier. And what that has done is mean that you don't need a major publisher to get your work out there. You just don't. Okay, you can self-publish. You can use a hybrid publisher. You can do a whole variety of things. You can print on demand. So what does that mean to you as the aspiring author? Number one, why do you want to be an author? Number, you know, is this a vanity play or you, is this a business? That's a if huge it's not a vanity play. And he can't answer that. It, right. If, it's not, if you're not going to treat it as a business, don't do it. Okay? And that's number one. Number two, you are not going to be published simply because you've got a great book idea. Publishers, Laura, who sells books? Um, I, I, asked, I asked this question at a, at a mastermind I spoke at two weeks ago. I said, who sells books? And they all said Amazon. And I said, wrong. Authors sell books. Yeah. Publishers don't sell books. Amazon doesn't sell books. Authors sell books. Publishers only want to invest in authors who can sell the book. Which means, if you want a book to be published, you must have a platform. And this is where we go back to nine years ago when we first met. Platform, platform, platform. What does that mean? It means an audience who are interested in what you have to say and will buy your book. That means an email list, social media following across all platforms. So that when the book, when you go to a publisher, you could say, I have X hundreds of thousand dollars of followers who are interested in me. And this is my plan, my marketing plan to sell my book. This is how I'm going to launch it. This is how I'm going to sell it. And that's how you, number one, get the ability to be published. And number two, you might, might get an advance. And if you do get an advance, what should you use the money for, Laura? Marketing. Correct. Good answer. So I've you trained me well. <laughs> I have clients who I've worked with who've gotten 106-figure book advances, close to seven. And the ones who are successful use that, that money to hire a good ghostwriter and to have a campaign to sell their book. So... Publishers, meanwhile, still think they're important, and they're not. And it translates to the fact that book contracts are horrible. And they, unless you're careful, the typical content creator these days is using a book as one part of their sales funnel, not as the be-all and end-all. They are doing training programs. They are selling products and services. They are an econ, they're an econ business. They have a content creator outlets, whether it be by email, newsletter, podcasts, webinars, you name it, okay? And if you look at the typical book contract, which was probably written 40, 50 years ago, they say that they are publishing the quote-unquote work. And you must, if you're, doing, if, you're, if you're being represented adequately, have reservation of rights that allow you to use your core competencies and concepts in things beyond the book. So, you know, if, uh, if I have a client who has a methodology, special methodology to develop in functional medicine, and they're writing a book, well, they're also going to be selling a training program and a, and a practitioner you know, certification program 
and they're going to be running through selling a diet, or they're going to be selling an ebook. And we have to make sure that that book deal doesn't prohibit them or give the publisher any rights to the rest of the ancillary derivative works. Because I've had clients walk away from half a million dollar uh, advances because the publishers wouldn't do it. Okay, so uh, you know. let's just yeah. step back a second around that because I know this is something that a lot of my listeners don't think about. So you, what you're saying is you, you've written a book and say it lays out your methodology or you want to go out on the speaking circuit, you have a course, you want to do workshops. If you don't specifically put into the contract that those things are not part of the deal, that the publisher then owns all the rights to that and gets money from that? Could be. Okay. Could be. Absolutely could be. And then, look, and this translates to other areas that are not per se traditional publishing. But, for example, I have clients who are big-name influencers who do endorsement deals, okay? Or they create courses of study for other companies, okay? But their expertise is all they have. I have clients who are PhDs in particular, particular areas, and their core competencies are very well-defined. And they want to be able to continue to practice their, their profession and to take advantage of opportunities. And each and every one of those deals they make needs to allow them to do other deals do to to share their content and to do their trainings and their teaching in other forums. So you, you have to be very careful about what people are owning. Well, I've had endorsement deals where the, the company is seeking the endorsement is, is calling for the content to be a work for hire, meaning they own it. Well, if you, if you own it here, what's left? Can I do this deal again? Okay? And we have to be very, you have to be very careful not to give up your rights to your work, to your ideas unless you want to. Nothing inadvertent should happen in your business relationships. Sort of like how Emeril Lagasse sold himself to Martha Stewart. He sold his name uh, and, and all of that to to her when he was making a shift in well, his business. We need to make sure that he, we're conscious I, about I mean, that. You want, you, right, you want to make it purposeful. Okay. But not inadvertent. Which often happens if you don't have somebody like yourself watching your back. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm too modest. I'm saying that <laughs> because it's so there, are, there are a lot of good advisors out there. But yeah. you got to, you know, you got to calm down and, 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 and really evaluate what, what the deal is. All right. So what are some things that people need to be thinking about when they're entering, other than this whole idea of, owning yourself and owning your ideas and your content. Is there, is there anything else that people need to think about before getting published or creating online content? Well, I mean, look, the basics. If you're using a trademark, which is a label to use to sell a pro to put to your product or service, make sure you can protect it. Right? You're not infringing on someone else. So do trademark searches before you start naming your business or your product or service. Make sure it's available to you. Just because you can buy a URL doesn't mean you own a trademark, okay? And so, you know, do searches to make sure. First use of a label for a product or service wins. So do your homework. Get good counsel, trademark counsel. Understand that, in, and these are pitfalls that happen almost weekly with clients of mine or other people who come and say, help me. Images are not things to just take and copy off the, off the web. Photographs are owned by people. 
and they cost money. And if you get a license to use images or have the photographs taken on your behalf with an appropriate work-for-hire provision, because you will, you will be, be, be contacted and you will be asked to pay for the, your use of that image. And, you know, what could have been a $100 license to use a photograph will turn into a $50,000 claim after the fact. Same thing with music. Music's not free. I have clients who created, uh, recently created a software program and used a couple of dozen jingles and uh, didn't get the right license, and it cost them $300,000. Wow, that's Because they didn't do their homework. Yeah. And he could have licensed it for under $2,000. Images and music are not free. Well, that also applies to quotes, too, right? Because I remember when I was writing my book, I was talking to you because I wanted to put a couple of paragraphs of something into the book from somebody else's work. You know, and I was going to acknowledge the work, but you said, no, you really need to get explicit permission from them because it's more than just a quote that's, you know, sort of out there in the world as a common quote. Right. Well, you, you want to get attribution for something small and permission for something larger. But, yeah, you, you know, you, you need to do your homework. But, you know, images, photographs, or video, it's not, it, just because it's on the web doesn't make it free. And, you know, and the, the peril is, you know, people say, oh, I can't believe that Getty Images sent me this letter. How, they're so mean. It's like, no, they're not. Photographers take pictures. Photographers have websites where their pictures are available for a fee. Okay? I can tell you, you use a Getty image shot without permission, the first request is 1000 The second request is more. And they're entitled to it. But I also have had clients, attorneys who are shakedowns, collection agencies on some images, where I have a client that runs a, has a, a, a meal planning business, and a piece of photograph of a piece of asparagus costs her $16,000. That's a lot of money. So if you do get a letter from somebody like a Getty Images, yeah, what's the first thing you do? You see whether you, have, you, whether you had a license for the image, what were the terms of it, and you, re- you respond back and said, no, no, you must be mistaken, I have, a, I have a license. And if you had the wrong license, well, chalk it up to experience, um, but you're going to pay, you're going to pay a settlement and make sure in that settlement that you have retroactive permission to use the image. So you don't go walk yourself back into the same circle of liability. Can any particular kind of insurance protect you in case you didn't have the right there license? Is, something there is what's called media, media coverage that, in some circumstances, can cover you for trademark and copyright infringement claims. But you know, see a good insurance broker. The answer is yes. Yeah. But every you know, that's another issue. If you're in business, you should have business insurance. Your business insurance should match up to your business. If you're selling products, you should have price liability. If you have people coming to your office or you're doing live events, you want to protect against people falling, tripping, and hurting themselves. You, you have employees, you should have uh, employment practices coverage for harassment or for termination claim. Run it like a business, like a grown-up. It's not a hobby. And if you just think that just writing a book doesn't require you to protect yourself, I'm going to guess that that's not true either. Correct. Correct. And look, if you have a major publisher, a lot of the response, they cannot take on the role of protecting you from infringement claims. But, you know, if you have ancillary offshoots of that book, which you should, 
I can't imagine a reason for a standalone book in this in this uh, industry right now. Then you need to run it like a business. If you can run it like a business, you have lawyers, accountants, Indian chiefs, and insurance. Okay. And if you're making a, a comment in a book and it's not truly truth and it's about somebody, don't well, do it. Well, you know, if it's malicious, you have a problem. Then, that, you know, tr- the truth always wins. In most cases. <laughs> it should. It Tell should. Unfortunately, in this day and age, it doesn't always happen that way, right. which is why you want to protect yourself. So, Peter, right. I want to make sure people that can reach out to you, if they have questions, they're interested in engaging you, having you look at their businesses and, and stuff, how do people reach out to you? Uh, you could see me on the web at peterhoppenfeld.com, E-T-E-R-H-O-P-P-E-N-F-E-L-D.com, phoppenfeld at gmail, no dot, no space. Uh, gmail.com or reach out to Laura. Uh, she can find me, and I'd be glad to help anyone anytime. Okay. Last thought you want to leave my listeners with? You know, when you see a fork in the road, take it. Don't believe your own bullshit. Excuse me. And uh, sometimes the best deals you make are the deals you don't make. Hopefully the uh, FCC won't FCC get on us for that last word you just used. Yeah, there you go. I didn't say anything, did I? No, you didn't say anything. You know that I, I we have a, a minute or so left. You said, "Don't believe your own BS. Don't drink your own Kool Aid." Why? Do you, why is that so right. important, Peter? Well, you know, because you can get caught in the bunker. You know, you you can go from hero to from zero to hero and hero to zero, and you really need to stay in touch with. You know, you need to have people around you, advisors you can trust, who will call you out on a bad idea. It, it becomes very easy to get insulated and believe you know, only what you understand yourself and to lose track of what's happening in the outside world, like tunnel vision. Um, and certainly as the, the busier you get and the more you're locked into your own world, it, that's an easy trap to fall into. And it's not, you know, critic, I'm not criticizing the fact that it's human nature, but you have to have people who call you on it. You need to be, you need to be in touch with your audience. You need to be in touch with yourself. You need to listen to your own messaging. I like to say it's not what you say, but what people hear. And I think it's really important that you have a way to balance, you know, your decision-making against reality, have somebody react to some reality testing for you, uh, have advisors who have, have a more experience than you to, to help you judge and test what you're doing, what you say. Uh, and when you stop doing that and you, you're living alone in an ivory tower, you tend to make mistakes. And yet it's a common problem with entrepreneurs is because they're, you know, they start their businesses themselves and there's nobody that is that mirror for them to really well, look at what's going on. Right. Because it's a, it's a level of giving up control. So, you know, it's, it's nice to say we're going to have a collaborative business and it's another thing for the CEO to really, or the founder to relinquish that control for collaboration really to work. Do you recommend that all entrepreneurs have some sort of advisory board, not necessarily a board of directors, but some sort of advisory mm. I, I think entrepreneurs need to share with, have an opportunity to talk to other entrepreneurs and talk to their employees and their customers and to have people empowered to challenge them. Because if, you if you're not challenged, then how can you grow? Correct. Okay. So what's next for you? What what are you working on right now? 
I'm waiting for the next fork. Cool. I long ago stopped worrying about it. Okay. Uh, things, things tend to happen organically, uh, and I am excited for the next challenge. Uh, I like the conversation. So I am just waiting for the next conversation and uh, seeing where the, next, where the next path takes me. Do you have any kind of practice that you do that allow, that sets you up for being able to notice when that fork comes? I just try to listen, okay. which is sometimes the biggest challenge. Is that when, are you listening when you're sitting out on the beach with your feet in the sand during the... In the, the sand before, uh, I'm trying, you know, you got to listen. You got to see the opportunity and you have to know how to ask for it. So as a young attorney, the hardest thing to learn is how to ask for the money. And I think that every, you know, once you, once you figure it out that you're actually in business, you have to ask for the sale. You have to ask for the opportunity. You can't be bashful. That I, I can't believe that we're in the last minute or so of the show and you're sharing even more nuggets like ask for the money, uh, which is a hard thing for so many people. But it we're, is. We're, gonna, we're at the end of the show. <laughs> Peter, I want to thank you again. Everybody go to peterhoppenfeld.com or reach out to me, and I'm happy to introduce you to Peter because he's just absolutely brilliant. Um, Peter, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks, Laura. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so grateful for your guidance and your friendship over the years. And if you missed any part of the show, it will go up to podcasts, so please don't forget to check out on your favorite podcast question, uh, solutions. Remember, everybody, the right questions can change your life. So what are you asking today? Have a great day, everyone. Download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today. 